Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, I am so happy you could join us for the second hour of the show. Going to make it worth your while, too. I have a special guest joining me. I'd like to welcome Jennifer Jensen, who is a trustee at Mount Liberty College here in the Salt Lake Valley. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I have to admit that until Chris Kimball gave me your name and told me a little bit about an event coming up, I didn't know a great deal about Mount Liberty College. So uh, before we talk about this special event coming up, uh, would you mind telling us just a little bit about uh, about the school? Tell us a little bit about what you do. And I understand that uh, the, the school itself is actually fairly new on the scene. Yeah, we're a brand new school. We just opened our doors last year for our first cohort of freshman students. Um, We had a great year, and right now we're looking for next year's freshman students. And each year we'll um, continue with another year until we're full. Uh, We're actually a classical liberal arts college, um, a classical education in the way that, say, Hillsdale is or St. John's, where we don't read textbooks. We read classics. We read the great books. We read actual um, texts from history. So we're reading the actual books themselves, not just about them, because we believe that there's a lot of wisdom in the past that helps us with answers for today and tomorrow. So there, people like um, Aristotle really had something to say about people like Bernie Sanders. And unless we read him, we're not ever going <laughs> to know the great wisdom that he taught. Oh, I I completely agree. Now, that's only because I had the privilege of undergoing a classical liberal arts education myself uh, starting about 15 years ago. I say starting because I'm still in in the midst of of doing it. It's kind of a daily thing. But there is something to be said for original sources. And it sounds like not only is this what your school uh, has emphasis on, but there's a wonderful workshop coming up that uh, you wanted our listeners to know about. What can you tell us about that? So we have a workshop coming up in August. David Barton and Tim Barton are going to be our guests. They're coming to Utah from Texas. Um, Some people, some of your listeners, I'm sure, know who they are. David Barton is really well known for his um, history, his books and his writings, his lectures on American history. He's an avid collector of historical documents and artifacts, and from those has been able to pull together true history and what really happened back then rather than some of the things that we hear today in history books and textbooks that just aren't true. And so we're bringing them here and we're hoping that they will be able to um, help us understand a little bit better about American history from those original sources. I have to say, I, I would give very high marks to David Barton. Uh, I'm not as familiar with his son, Tim, but David is one of the catalysts that actually launched me on on my talk radio career uh, some 25 or more years ago because I watched a video of his, America's Godly Heritage, and I made the connection at that point. This isn't just about, hey, freedom is a good idea. It's about freedom is one of the greatest gifts that the creator of this universe has ever given his children. And those who handle it as if it were a gift from God have a tendency to perpetuate it and to keep it hanging around. And those who don't, tend to lose it. Yes, yes, I totally agree. And right now in our time period, we seem to be trying to lose it. And I feel like it's a perfect time to have them come and 
speak to us and, you know, kind of give us a little of a reality check of what we really should be doing and how things should be going, what the founders expected. Well, so, and, yeah, I totally agree with you. Jennifer, I'm going to put you on, on the spot a little bit here, but I, I know you have the answer to this, and that is, what can we learn from the founders? I know it's fashionable to think, well, they didn't have the Internet, and they're not as smart as us. They couldn't fly planes or anything. Okay, there were some differences in their world and ours. Why would we be very foolish to discount what they understood? Well, I think we tend to look at those things like um, technology and assume that, that our lives are so different that, that, that there isn't anything they could teach us. But in reality, even if we're living in a highly technical world, we're still the same sorts of people. We have the same human nature and the same um, problems, and you know, we all want the same things that they did back then. And so power still corrupts. Um, we still want love and food and friendship and all of those kind of things that are important. And so, so really, people haven't changed. And so the fact that um, they could see what human nature would bring in, that, that, that we are fallible and that we do make mistakes, that we, are, that we do tend to let power corrupt us, things of that nature, that, that they could see how important it was to check that and to make sure that, that um, people in government were not left free reign to do whatever they wanted. And we can kind of see that corruption today. Oh, boy. <laughs> as we see that they keep, yeah, they keep pulling more and more power, where if we had stuck with what the founders had originally intended, chances of us being this far would, you know, would probably be less. Because they really did understand that, that people would tend to go this way. They were, they were masters of, of historical knowledge. They understood the... I mean, especially if you read the Fed papers, you can see that where they understood history so well and how, you know, how governments were corrupted, how they were, how they ended up um, becoming more and more centralized and, and powerful. And, and so they took all of this knowledge that they had and put it into their founding documents so that they are into our founding documents so that it would stop it as much as it possibly could, hoping that then we would stay educated and be able to also help. And we've kind of lost that part, too. We're not educated the way we should be. We don't understand history at all the way that we should if we want to be able to protect those principles. And so this is kind of a chance we have to learn from some really great experts about this, these principles and, and maybe come back to them, understand why they set it up the way they did. What you have just described, Jennifer, sounds like uh, a very good way of looking at the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know, knowledge is is good, and it can be very appropriate within a, a particular time or place. Wisdom has the advantage of standing the test of time, meaning it will be true in all times, in all places, and that is, uh, that's what the founders were drawing upon more so than just the knowledge of, well, but this is what works in, you know, 1787 or 1776. They, they had wisdom gleaned from throughout the ages. You mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, you know, they, they were familiar with what people like Aristotle had said yeah. and thought and, and, and were fluent in, in many of the greatest thinkers of, of Western civilization. Yes, yeah, I, they knew all of the people that we tend to think of today, Plato, Aristotle, I mean, all of those guys that we don't even, we hear about, but we never really read ourselves very often. And so they really understood human nature, and they understood 
the fallibility of it. And, and they weren't so emotionally based. We seem to be very emotionally based in our society today. And so we let fear lead us where they tried really hard to be much more not logical about it. They um, tried to follow what really happened and what what really could then fix the problem. And were they perfect? No, but they definitely had some really great ideas and, and changed the history of the world because of it. Well, and, and they didn't necessarily all march in lockstep either. There were significant disagreements even among members of the founding generation. But there was yeah. also enough common ground that uh, where they needed to, they could come together with one voice. And, and you see this very clearly in the Declaration of Independence. You see it in the Constitution itself. The Federalist Papers, even the Anti-Federalist Papers, are marvelous sources of of their wisdom and their knowledge and, and applying it to problems that they were trying to solve well, at the same time, trying to prevent us from uh, from having to, to shoulder many of those problems, you know, down the road. Yeah, yeah, those are all great, great things to read. The anti-Fed, all the arguments that they have in the anti-Fed papers about what's wrong with government actually did come to pass, every single one of them. And we could really learn a lot from that and potentially um, make things even better than what they were able to make. I mean, what they did was really awesome and great, but but they had to compromise with problems such as slavery and things where today we wouldn't have to do that. And and we could really learn from all of those, from reading both sides. It's so important to always read both sides of the argument. Rather than just listening to your side and getting told you're right, it's really great to listen to the other side and find out where you might be lacking. And that's a really hard thing for people to do. It is, and it's uncomfortable. But like you say, it's good for us. It's kind of like eating your broccoli, right? No, no kid really, yeah. you know, looks right. <laughs> I'm mean, like, wow, broccoli, thanks. But uh, but it's good for you, and and it helps you become a more well rounded person. Jennifer Jensen is it my does. guest. Jennifer, are you okay to hang with me for one more segment? I want to talk about this workshop sure. in some detail. She is a trustee at Mount Liberty College, and they have a very important three day workshop coming up in August featuring David and Tim Barton. If you're not familiar with David Barton, I would encourage you to get acquainted with Wall Builders. They have done remarkable work in historical reclamation. In fact, when we come back, Jennifer and I are going to talk a little bit about why do we need to reclaim history? I mean, is it possible? I ask, you know, hypothetically. Is it possible somebody could twist history or distort history for the sake of their own, you know, current agenda? I think we know the answer to that. We're going to talk about it. Just the other side of these messages. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I am so happy to have Jennifer Jensen on the line with me. She is a trustee at Mount Liberty College. And Jennifer, specifically, we have you here today to talk about a very important event coming up in August, a three-day workshop on uh, founding documents. And could we talk just a little bit about that event? I want to. I want people to have time to grab a pencil and paper if necessary. How can they go about being a part of this? What What does it require? So our website, mountlibertycollege.org, it's all spelled out, so M-O-U-N-T, mountlibertycollege.org. On the front page, there's a button you can click that says uh, the David Barton Workshop. And and when you go to that page, it gives you all the information and how to register. 
um, it's actually, we actually have them for the full three days. We have a workshop for youth ages 15 to 25 during the day that goes from 9 to 4. And then we have an evening one for adults. And, and it's August 10th through 12th, so Monday through Wednesday. Um, and the adult one goes from 6 to 9 in the evening, and the youth one is from 9 to 4. And we all felt like the, the, the youth would get a lot more out of it if they were kind of there by themselves and could ask questions and talk about things without feeling like adults were there too, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. So we wanted to be able to help them um, learn this stuff too because they're just not getting it in the schools today. And and so we felt like um, it was really important for for both groups to be able to have time to really communicate. And I'm sure the the topics are going to be slightly different for adults and for youth, which is which is totally understandable and a really great idea. So, but but um, we're trying to keep the price down really, really low. It's going to be held at Paradigm High School in South Jordan, so it should be pretty easy. It's not hard to get to or anything like that. And um, we've really appreciate them letting us have it there. So it will be it will be really great. They're going to have. We're also going to have some people from here talk about or bring some of their um, early history artifacts, early American history artifacts. So we'll have some stuff there to see as well as getting to hear them speak. And I just want to clarify for, for the website again, MountLibertyCollege.org. Can you spell that out for us? Yeah, Mount, M-O-U-N-T, Liberty, L-I-B-E-R-T-Y, college, C-O-L-L-E-G-E dot org, O-R-G. Perfect. So just just all spelled out, no spaces, mountlibertycollege.org. Jennifer, let's let's talk for a moment about the difference between just being, say, a cheerleader for founding documents or for the founding era or for the Constitution versus being a well-rounded student of history and student of liberty. Obviously, there's a gap between those two things. Um, I think a lot of people are well-intentioned, and they they say, well, of course I support these things, and why, you know, I would always encourage people to support the Constitution, but what kind of a difference does it make when a person actually sits down and looks at original documents and reads original documents and, and gains understanding of them? How does that empower a person beyond simply cheerleading? Well, I think you really start to understand the why behind it. Why did the founders set it up the way they did? Why did they put in an electoral college, say? Why did they have a bicameral house? Why did they decide that the three branches of government need to be split and separate from each other? If you don't understand why, then it becomes really easy to allow other people to talk you into into changing it. For instance, you know, maybe we don't need the Electoral College because, you know, the votes don't match up with the Electoral College votes. Well, if you understood the Electoral College and why it was made the way it would, that doesn't matter. And we don't really understand it, and so it doesn't make sense. And once we really understand it, it really opens the door to why they did it and why it's so important. One really great example of that I like to use is Frederick Douglass. He, when he very first, um, he was a slave, started out as a slave and then escaped. And when he very first escaped, he hated the Constitution and, and, and the founders. He felt like they had forced him into slavery and that the Constitution was full of slavery, uh, allowing slaves and, and that sort of thing. And, and it wasn't until he read it himself that he realized that all that he had been told was wrong. 
And that's really typical of textbooks where you're, you're really getting, when you read a textbook, you're really getting somebody's opinion about what they said rather than about what they said. And so to actually read what they said in context so that, you know, you're looking at the culture that they had and, and the time period, it really makes a difference rather than just reading, you know, what somebody says they said. Here, you're, here. Not, you're not really getting the story. Well, and I don't want to I don't want to pick on any particular, you know, type of schooling, higher education, public schools. But suffice it to say, textbooks have a tendency to reflect what is um, fashionable then or, you know, at the the time that the person who paid for the textbook, you know, cuts the check. So they're written to be favorable to whatever uh, whoever is in power at the moment. And if you really want to understand, well, what were these guys and gals thinking? It's very helpful to go back to step back in time, if you will, and read those old books and read those original sources, even though sometimes you have to have a dictionary handy just to, you know, make your way through and make sure you're understanding. (laughs) Yes, you do. Yeah, that is very true. And an old dictionary, too, helps. Yes. Noah Webster, 1828. (laughs) They were not writing to be politically correct or or even necessarily to sell. They were trying to get their messages out and and to be heard and and not every one of their messages is right i mean it's just as important to really read marx and understand marx as it is to really read the founders because what we're being told about marx isn't necessarily true either and and we're not understanding what's really what's really coming if we accept those things because we we haven't learned about them really we don't understand what's really there well, and, so understanding history makes a huge difference. And this this is where David Barton and his organization, Wall Builders, have done remarkable things in helping to set the record straight. Not because, well, we just happen to have the best slant on, on what was uh, said or what, what the founders thought about a given idea, but they go to the original sources. We have this person's diary. This is what this person said yeah. in a letter to this person. They're actual words, not what some professor somewhere thinks about what they might have said. Yes, and that's what's so great. One of the things that they're going to talk about at these workshops is how to spot fake history versus real history. They're going to teach us how to do that, and they're going to talk about these really controversial subjects that we don't really understand very well, like slavery and religion in the founding days and and cultural changes that have happened and, you know, all of those kind of things, what makes America unique and all of those kind of topics that um, – aren't necessarily politically correct and so they're being there we're hearing only the the textbook version of them rather than the actual historical version here here and there's a huge difference and and again the workshop is coming up in august what were the dates again august 10th through the 12th so monday through wednesday and this will be taking place where at paradigm high school is where we're holding it in their in their uh, gym, they have a nice big gym. Should have plenty of space for everybody, and um, there should be lots of lots of room. and And we're hoping that we can. We're basically just going to take. We're just going to take it until it's you know, so, or offer tickets and stuff until it fills up. So as soon as it fills up, then it will be you know full and too late. But right now, we still have some openings. Okay. And again, people who want to get more information or want to get signed up for it, they can get on your website at uh, Mount Liberty College. Spell out Mount. Don't abbreviate it. MountLibertyCollege.org. Yes. Yep, MountLibertyCollege.org. 
Jennifer, I so appreciate you taking time to talk with me about this today. And if we need to uh, reach out and tickle people's ears, you know, prior to the event, you let me know. And and, uh, my pulpit is your pulpit. That would be great. Anybody who really wants to understand history better and even understand why we're going through what we're going through right now will probably learn a lot from this workshop. I agree. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is my number. Okay, so I have, to, I have to get this off my chest. My mind has been blown since about 5 o'clock this morning. And, and I just got to say something about it. There's not a, a ton that I can say, but I am so geeked out that, uh, that I don't know what to do with myself. I, I, there are very few times in my life I have found myself in this situation where I'm, I'm just like bouncing off the walls. But here I am. So uh, as an early Father's Day present, my oldest or one of my boys, I shouldn't say my oldest, he's my second oldest boy, David, got me set up with 23andMe. Yes, the thing where you spit into a tube, you send them your spit and they, you know, break down your DNA and essentially, um, you know, tell you about your background, tell you, you know, where where your DNA originates, uh, also can tell you closer family members or, or relatives who share your DNA. Pretty fascinating stuff. And what makes it especially fascinating to me is I was adopted. When I was four days old, uh, I was adopted to my mom and dad, and thats uh, they're the only parents that I've ever known. But I've had this thing in the back of my mind, and I have wondered over the years, and that, that uh, curiosity has grown stronger, especially as I have grown older, as I've become a dad and then a grandfather. You know, I want to know, um, what's the rest of my story? What could I learn about my biological parents. And I've brought this up from time to time over the years. Uh, uh, Occasionally, you know, I mean, a a few years ago, I sat down and kind of wrote a little, this is the letter. This is what I would say to my birth mother if I had the chance to talk to her. And it was just something simple, you know, reassuring her, look, you made the right choice. If you've ever wondered, you know, did I do the right thing? I think you did the noble thing. You have my respect. You have my admiration for doing what couldn't have been the easier thing to do. But uh, but was the right thing. And I always in my mind pictured that, uh, you know, eventually someday, maybe here, maybe in the hereafter, I'm going to connect up with this lady and I'm going to get a chance to tell her that. You know, hopefully face to face. And I knew that there was a possibility in doing the whole DNA thing with 23andMe that uh, that I would be able to potentially find biologically related family members um, and 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 connect with them. So uh, my sisters, I have two sisters, they were also adopted, and uh, both of them had done this. One of them actually was on the phone with her birth mother about eight hours after getting her results back. I mean, like that fast. 
My other sister learned a lot about herself, but uh, couldn't find any close relatives or anybody that she could actually reach out to. So she was a little bit disappointed about that. And I, I didn't know what to expect. And so I've tried not to set my expectations too high. But this morning, as I've been waiting thinking, you know, June 3rd, by June 3rd, they should have my results to me, you know, from 23andMe. Um, I get this weird email, and it's from a first cousin. Wait, I take it back, a second cousin, saying, hey, I would, uh, I'd like to connect with you and share information on 23andMe. And I thought, could it be? Maybe my uh, results have, have actually come in. Well, apparently they had. And so I see that there's this uh, second cousin who wants to connect. Interestingly enough, when my oldest son did this, uh, 23 and me thing a couple of years ago. This is a person that uh, he was shown being related to. Nobody we recognized, not a name that uh, sounded familiar, but it was like, well, there it is. There was also a little uh, tab there that said other relatives or other people who, who whose DNA you share. And I clicked on that and this is the part that blew my mind. I think I may have found my biological father. Now I look at the guy and it's like, whoa, <laughs> if he's not, then we're both missing a good opportunity. There's, there's more than enough resemblance. And I think, it, you know, the percentage of DNA, it's like 47 something percent. That's, you know, pretty much a, a sure thing. My son tells me. So I haven't contacted the guy yet. I don't know if, if I'll be able to have sent an invite. It'll probably all happen through, you know, the, the DNA service but there it is my mind is blown i'm 54 years old and never really thought that uh, that the day would come you know the, that i would meet i never really dreamed that there'd be a day i would meet uh, any of my birth parents or at least know who they were um i always figured it would be my birth mother turns out it's probably going to be my biological father instead and I know what you're wondering, and I'll just tell you, yes, he is as good-looking and as uh, as uh, brainy as I am. And humble, too, apparently. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't know much of anything about him, but uh, I've had some friends who've asked over the years, you know, if you could share that, you know, if, when you do it, this is the moment. Here it is. So the moment of truth has, has arrived. I'll let you know if, if there's anything to, to share from here on. I'll be sure and share that. But uh, what an amazing way to start the day. And, and because of that, my mind has pretty much been all over the place. So you'll forgive me if I get a little bit uh, distracted. But the show must go on. Let's talk about a couple things that are also really important. I don't know if you heard about this. I've been talking about the uh, event scheduled for, it was scheduled for, uh, what was it, uh, Barnes Park in Kaysville, Utah for uh, May 30th. That's a week from Saturday. Uh, scratch that. The event has actually found a different place. Uh, it's, it's going to be held in um, Grantsville, just outside of Tooele. And it is going to be a Colin Ray concert. So it's going to be a free concert. It's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be held on private property. But, wow, do you want to see what government is like at work? The city of Kaysville had a press release all ready to go out, and, and this, is what they, this is how they portrayed it. And, and I'm, I'm trying to be fair about this, but, but I'm, in my heart, I'm struggling not to feel a degree of contempt for, for people who are, are that desperate to stay in control. They portray it as on May 30th, 2020, a protest 
in quotation marks, has been organized to take place at Barnes Park in Kaysville. The purpose of that concert was not as a protest. And if you've ever heard Eric Mutso speak on this, you would understand. It was not to, to protest. It was simply to assert, we are going to get out there and live our lives. If that's seen as a protest, I don't know what to tell you. A permit has not been issued from either Kaysville City or the Davis County Health Department. Well, now, do you need a permit to gather? I was thinking under the Constitution that was just like a natural right. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have to go to, to government to, you know, to ask to gather. But just in case, because this apparently is such a terrifying thing to some members of the city council, they were going to cut the electricity to Barnes Park on that day. They say this this is nice little legal flex here. The Kaysville City Police Department will work with Kaysville City prosecutors and Davis County Attorney's Office to pursue any and all criminal and and civil remedies to those responsible for this unpermitted event including anyone contracting COVID-19, any additional injuries to attendees, or damage to the park. Talk about hiding behind the law. Wow. Also, they will be locking parking lot gates, running sprinkling systems, and any other actions deemed necessary and responsible to deter attendance. Interesting. In response to the planned event, they will take any and all lawful actions to maintain the health and safety of the community, even if we have to lock you all in cages, to keep the park free of damage and uphold the rule of law and the integrity of the Kaysville City event permit process. That's what government looks like when it gets a taste of power and just can't imagine itself not having that kind of control. The creed of statism is anything that is not under the direct control of the state is by definition out of control. That's what statism looks like in practice. And I think it's pretty cool that, uh, you know, Eric Mutzos did a Facebook Live event earlier today uh, and just said, look, we have found private property. Please come. They'll have uh, information there at utahbusinessrevival.com. You can, you can get all the information you need. Private property, you don't have to worry about being arrested. You don't have to worry about being harassed. You don't have to worry about being regulated or permitted just in order to go out there and gather and listen to a great concert and, and practice responsible social distancing if that is what you want to do. Nobody's going to crowd up on you. It's not going to be a big mosh pit. You can wear a mask and nobody's going to think twice about it. If you need to keep distance, keep your distance. If you don't feel like it's the safe thing to do, then for heaven's sakes, exercise your conscience and stay home. And for the little folks in, in Kaysville, well, I think there is going to be a gathering of some sorts. And I hope that they do turn on the sprinklers because people are being encouraged that uh, when that gathering does take place, bring your swimsuits, bring your slip and slides, and let's make a family fun day out of it. By the way, do uh, do these masks hold up well with uh, you know the slip and slide and 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 water? I assume they do. I just don't want anybody you know inadvertently waterboarding themselves you know in the in the course of having fun. So there you have it. That is what uh, that is what happens when fear meets a little bit of power. All right. Like I say, I'm struggling not to feel. A little bit of contempt towards the ones who just have to be in control, but I'll keep working on it. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back in just a moment. 
fact of pain relief. It's natural. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Is it bad that I struggle with feeling petty? Like, it's become a little power struggle, and I look at the the city council there in Kaysville, and I just think, you guys are really full of yourselves. (laughs) I I know I shouldn't feel that way. I should just let it go. Okay, we've got a location. There's a a place where the concert's going to be held. It's going to be fun. We don't need the sour pusses to ruin it, but uh, I guess it's it's my bad if I'm letting them live rent-free in my head. Okay, I'll leave victims sooner than later. There was a great article by James Bovard. This was from the American Institute for Economic Research. Asks a very relevant question, and this is true all across the country. The question is, will the political class be held liable for what they've done? Now, I know the knee-jerk reaction is no, because they're in power and they always get away with it, but... Listen to what he is saying as to why should they be held accountable. It makes a lot of sense. And I would remind you there is an election coming up this fall. So maybe that accountability or at least a degree of accountability is closer than you think. James Bovard says politically dictated lockdowns and prohibitions have recently destroyed tens of millions of American jobs. Politicians have effectively claimed a right to inflict unlimited economic damage in pursuit of zero COVID-19 contagion. The perverse incentives driving the policy have multiplied the harm far beyond the original peril. Almost 40% of households earning less than $40,000 per year have someone who lost their job in recent months. That's according to the Federal Reserve. The, The Disaster Distress Helpline A federal crisis hotline received almost 900% more phone calls in March compared to a year ago. And a recent journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry Analysis warns that stay-at-home orders and rising unemployment are a perfect storm for higher suicide rates. A California health organization recently estimated that up to 75,000 Americans could die from despair as a result of the pandemic, unemployment, and government restrictions. So James Bovard's pointing out here that in the name of saving lives, politicians have entitled themselves to destroy an unlimited number of livelihoods. Politicians in many states responded to COVID-19 by dropping the equivalent of a reverse neutron bomb, something which destroys the economy while supposedly leaving human beings unharmed. But the only way to assume people were uninjured is to believe their existence is totally detached from their jobs, bank accounts, and mortgage and rent payments. Politicians have vaccinated themselves against any blame for the economic carnage by touting experts who said, well, it was all necessary. Over the past 90 days, government bureaucrats have become a new priesthood that can sanctify unlimited sacrifices in the name of public health. COVID policymakers have written themselves the same letter that Cardinal Richelieu, the 17th century French statesman, purportedly gave to his agents. The bearer of this letter has acted under my orders and for the good of the state. This carte blanche was sufficient to place murders and other crimes above the law and beyond reproach in France. In contemporary America, the same exoneration is achieved by invoking science and data. Oregon Governor Kate Brown banned residents from leaving their homes except for essential work, buying food, and other narrow exemptions, and also banned all recreational travel. Six Oregon counties have only one confirmed COVID case, and most of the state has minimal infections, but schools, businesses, and other activities were slammed shut 
by government command. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer imposed some of the most severe restrictions, prohibiting anyone from leaving their home to visit family or friends. COVID infections were concentrated in the Detroit metropolitan area. But Whitmer shut down the entire state, including northern counties with near zero infections and zero fatalities, boosting unemployment to 24% statewide. Her repression provoked fierce protests, and Whitmer responded by claiming that her dictates saved 3,500 lives. Whitmer exonerated herself with a statistical formula that was painfully ethereal compared to the stark physical devastation in Michigan. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear's shutdown order resulted in the highest rate of unemployment in the nation, 33%. But according to Senator Rand Paul, COVID's impact in Kentucky has not been worse than an average flu season. But that did not stop Bashir from banning people from attending church services and sending Kentucky State Police to attach notices to car windshields, ordering church attendees to self-quarantine for 14 days and reporting them to local health departments. Now, James Bovard says shutting down entire states, including vast uninfected rural swaths, is the economic equivalent of burning witches or sacrificing virgins to appease angry viral gods. Because politicians have no liability for the economic damage they inflict, they have no incentive to minimize the disruptions they decree. Thousands or rather trillions of dollars of new deficit spending will be vexing American workers for many years. And then you have the state of Missouri, which has sued the government of China, claiming it is liable for the losses inflicted by the virus that apparently originated in Wuhan, China. Now, most observers predict that that lawsuit will go nowhere. But thanks to sovereign immunity, it would be even more hopeless for American citizens to sue politicians for the damage that their shutdown orders have inflicted on their businesses, paychecks and lives. See, sovereign immunity creates a two-tiered society, those above the law and those below it, those whom the law fails to bind and those whom the law fails to protect. I think he's making sense here. This legal doctrine almost guarantees that no politician will face any personal liability for their shutdown dictates. Even New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who callously compelled nursing homes to accept COVID patients, will have no legal culpability for a policy that contributed to more than 5,000 nursing home deaths in his state. Pennsylvania health czar Rachel Levine issued a similar order contributing to thousands of nursing home deaths and then removed her own 95-year-old mother from a nursing home to keep her safe. Laws for thee, but not for me, right? James Bovard says politicians presume they are blameless for destroying jobs as long as the victims receive temporary unemployment compensation. But actually, he says it's worse than that. Politicians claim a right to seize a slice of the paychecks of people still working to recompense people whose jobs they destroyed. Would a private corporation be able to escape punishment for breaking people's legs by giving free crutches to its victims? Better safe than sorry, he says, is damned risky when politicians have no liability for what they ravage. There is no way that politicians can compensate American citizens for all the damage they've inflicted in this pandemic. And he says this COVID shutdown catastrophe should be a permanent black mark against the political class and the experts who sanctified each and every sacrifice. Wow. That's pretty strong language. But I agree wholeheartedly.
going to leave you with a couple thoughts here from Judge Andrew Napolitano. This is on LewRockwell.com. I'll have links to uh, both of these articles, the one I just shared, as well as uh, Judge Napolitano's. Uh, one, of the, one of Napolitano's favorite, uh, one of my favorite things that he does is he pursues a line of questioning. And it's rather than just, you know, here's the facts, here's, uh, here's the way that it is. He does the Socratic thing and asks the questions instead that will hopefully lead a person to a better understanding. And he starts with the question, what if the government has it wrong on the medicine and the law? What if face masks can't stop the COVID-19 virus? What if quarantining the healthy makes no medical sense? What if staying at home for months reduces immunity? What if more people have been infected with the virus in their homes than outside them? What if there are as many credible scientists and physicians who disagree with the government as those who agree with it? And what if the government chooses only to listen to scientists and physicians who would tell it what it wanted to hear? What if the government silences scientists and physicians and even fires one who attempt to tell it what it didn't want to hear? What if the government wants to stoke fear in the populace because mass fear produces mass compliance? And what if individual fear reduces individual immunity? What if a healthy immunity gets stronger when challenged? What if a pampered immunity gets weaker when challenged? What if we all pass germs and viruses that we don't even know we have onto others all the time, but their immune systems repel what we pass on to them? What if the COVID-19 virus has run its course and run into natural immunities? What if many folks have had symptom-free episodes with many viruses and are now immune from them? What if the government refuses to understand this because it undermines the government's power to control us? What if the government orders to nursing homes and assisted living facilities or, or orders these facilities to accept the sick and contagious? What if those orders are insane? What if the same government that micromanages nursing homes and assisted living facilities knows that they're not hospitals and not equipped to cure the sick or contain the contagion? What if the government makes health care decisions not on the basis of medicine or human nature, but statistics? What if reliance on the government's statistics has made many folks sick? What if, as Thomas Jefferson said, the blood of patriots should be spilled on the tree of revolution at least once in every generation? What if we nullify the government that has nullified our rights? He's got some other great questions there, too, but I think these are questions worth considering, don't you? 